I did a top 10 Treks episode where I looked at my favourite episodes of the original Star Trek. I'd always planned to follow that up with a look at my favourite episodes of The Next Generation, but as with everything, other things got in the way. However, with all of Star Trek now on Netflix, I have been revisiting the show, watching a few episodes here and there, never in order, just at random, and I've been pleasantly surprised by how well it holds up. Sure, some of the design choices are weird now, the Hotel Enterprise and the Let's Talk About Your Feelings counsellor, but overall the series still manages to entertain. When The Next Generation debuted in the autumn of 1987, speculation and fan attention was rife. Many wondered if that elusive thing that was Star Trek could be replicated. After all, Star Trek was a curious broth. The best Star Trek has been described as part drama, part melodrama, part science fiction, part Shakespeare, part comedy, part philosophy. And that's a heady mixture to pull off. Starlog was full of articles and behind-the-scenes information in the lead-up to the show, and the letters pages were full of speculation and, yes, some vitriol. Some things never change. Unlike the original, this show would be made for syndication, meaning no network interference, although the producers never really took advantage of this creative freedom, remaining relatively staid throughout the series' run, with the exception of one episode, Conspiracy, which really embraced the ability to do horror. Watching The Next Generation in the UK was a chore. To recoup their losses, early on, Paramount decided to embargo the series for television sale, and instead release it straight to the video rental market. Once a month, two episodes, sandwiched together to make a fake movie, were released to increasingly dwindling returns, as video shops refused to take up room with a syndicated television show where they could make far more money with this month's big-budget blockbuster. As such, after a few releases, it became increasingly difficult to see the show, meaning we had to resort to more nefarious means. Two episodes, Home Soil and Too Short a Season, were deemed too awful to even get a legitimate release, and we didn't see those episodes until the BBC were finally allowed to screen the series from 1990 onwards. When this happened, The Next Generation became a sizeable hit, proving that, had Paramount released it to TV sale earlier, they probably would have made more money than with these stupid video releases. But hey, greed is good, right? For seven seasons, the Next Generation crew boldly went. Sometimes not quite where no one had gone before, but often with a view to providing some mind food to go with the visuals. When it reached its grand finale, not only were the ratings still stellar, but it had eclipsed the original in the hearts and minds of viewers. Not only had Paramount successfully caught lightning in a bottle, but they'd managed to market it as well. For this list, the criteria was simple. I picked shows I liked. It's as easy as that. They may not be the best examples of Trek, they may not even be highly regarded episodes by the rest of fandom, but they are episodes I like. What I found interesting was that more first season episodes made the shortlist than from the generally considered peak of the show's popularity, namely seasons 5 and 6. As I trimmed my rather large shortlist down to more manageable lengths, some of these episodes ultimately didn't make the final cut. 
The Big Goodbye, for instance, is a fun segment with great performances from a clearly having fun Patrick Stewart, Brent Spiner and Gates McFadden. But like Elementary Dear Data, it doesn't really hold up as an episode in and of itself. But I felt, and still feel, that the first season had an edge that later shows didn't have. The first season felt like a show willing to push the boundaries, to take some risks, be it in tone, what they wanted to achieve, direction and score. By season five, then-executive producer Rick Berman was far too conservative. He had a hit show and he was doing everything in his power to not mess that up. As such, season five, which, like I said, is considered a high watermark in the history of The Next Generation, has a run of incredibly worthy but oh-so-dull episodes in its midsection that are some of the most monotonous in Trek history. From New Ground to Imaginary Friend, a run of 13 episodes, only the off-concept, cause and effect, and the rather fun power play have anything in them that caused me to stifle my yawns. To this day, I have never even been back and revisited a lot of the middle of season 5, so prevalent are my memories of relentless tedium. To no surprise, the majority of my favourites come from season 3 and 4, for me the true high watermark of the series. For these two seasons, the viewer could rely on, at the very least, being entertained every week, as opposed to being infuriated at the irregular quality control, seasons 1, 2 and 7, or risking passing out due to boredom, seasons 5 and 6. In contrast to the early and later years, there are only three outright stinkers in season 3. Transfigurations, a matter of perspective and the vengeance factor, and only one boring episode. The bonding. Season 4 has an even better batting average with only two demonstrably bad episodes, Night Terrors and The Loss, and only one truly silly one, Galaxy's Child, which played more like a Space 1999 than Star Trek, although it can be enjoyed at least on that level. The remaining seasons are as mixed a bag as ever erred on a Trek series, scaling the highest highs, lower decks, Timescape, Chain of Command and Darmok, and plumbing the lowest lows, Sub Rosa, Man of the People, Aquiel and Masks. After getting to the end of the list, you will also notice something odd. The best of both worlds and Q-Who are nowhere to be seen. Now, this isn't me being all iconoclastic or hipster quirky, they are great episodes, arguably the two best episodes in the run of the series. But that's the problem. You all know they're the best. I know they're the best. Even people have very little knowledge of the next generation, but our fans of genre TV know these two episodes are the best. So why not give that space to other equally deserving episodes that may not get a shout-out as often as they should? With all that preamble out of the way, here then are my ten-ish favourite episodes of The Next Generation. Where no one has gone before. When an arrogant and narcissistic Starfleet engineer conducts experiments on the Enterprise's warp engines, the crew find themselves millions of light years from home. When I first saw this episode, it was jaw-dropping. Up until this point, the next generation had been coasting. It wasn't bad, but there was a feeling that it was being tolerated only because it was the only game in town. There were precious few other genre series on the earth. Where no one upped the ante considerably. There was an imaginative premise from writers Diane Duane and Michael Reeves, loosely based on Duane's Star Trek novel The Wounded Sky, and both are accomplished authors. 
There was superb direction from first-time lensman Rob Bauman and one of Trek's all-time great guest performances in Stanley Camel's Kaczynski. Kaczynski was the perfect antidote to the ultra-dull Enterprise crew, a kick in their complacency, if you will, and he blew them all off-screen with his arrogance and confidence. Witness Commander Riker and Chief Engineer Argyle's constant eye-rolling of the background at pretty much everything he says, and the wonderful way he pushes past Riker in engineering, which is worth it just for the reaction on Jonathan Frakes' face. The special effects are top-notch, and there are some nice character moments for Worf, Tasha Yar, and Picard, but this is Wesley's episode. His relationship with the Traveller is one of the series' most touching, and Will Wheaton is neither as annoying nor as deserving of hate as his reputation would suggest. Wesley solves this one not by being annoying, but simply by watching, not getting caught up in all the drama. A really fun score by Ron Jones rounds out this magnificent and underrated early first season gem, which would also provide the basic premise for Q Who and Star Trek Voyager. The Arsenal of Freedom Searching for the USS Drake, which disappeared around the planet Minos, the Enterprise crew run afoul of an automated weapons system, left behind by a dead race. Now, on the one hand, the arsenal of freedom doesn't make a lot of sense. The central idea, a commentary on the arms race, doesn't really go anywhere, despite the best efforts of guest star Vincent Schiavelli. The character motivations are off in places. Picard doesn't really give a reason to beam down to the planet, and Chief Logan is a pain in the ass to Geordie for no reason other than to create false drama. The final act conclusion, where Geordie is still battling the automated weapon system in space, despite the fact that Picard has turned the machine controlling them off down on the planet, is stupid as hell. However, despite these moments... The Arsenal of Freedom is an absolutely great episode because of how everyone gets a moment to shine. Well, except poor Wesley, who's not even in the episode. The script splits up the characters in an unusual fashion. So whilst Geordi is in command with Worf as his de facto first officer on the Enterprise, Riker, Yar and Data are fighting battlebots on the planet's surface and Picard has to play doctor to a wounded Beverly in a dirty cave. It works wonderfully. The dialogue is funny, with Riker's line about being in command of the good ship Lollipop being a standout. Performances are great almost across the board, and there's a lot of action, which is out of character for the next generation. There's one really brilliant moment where Data launches Yar across the planet to get her out of the way of the BattleBots that is a magnificent stunt and character moment. It is in the background, so you really have to look for it. There's even a saucer separation. They're always cool. The storyline is wrapped up far too quickly, although the ending where Picard chides Geordie for not bringing back his starship in one piece is hysterical, and Denise Crosby is the one not-too-great performance I alluded to, but overall this is a really underrated and entertaining episode. Conspiracy A group of highly decorated starship captains alert Picard to a potential threat from an unknown race to infiltrate Starfleet from the inside. One of the darkest instalments in the entire run, the biggest surprise about Conspiracy is that Gene Roddenberry even let the episode be made. Writer Tracy Tome pretty much breaks all the rules here, having Starfleet depicted as something less than honourable, and the crew on edge for most of the episode's running time, both to the benefit of the story. Boasting some pretty good cinematography, the story ramps up the paranoia as it progresses, with even Picard, and by extension the viewer, feeling uneasy and unsure of his next move. 
This feeling of foreboding continues throughout and is aided immeasurably by the scene where octogenarian Admiral Quinn kicks the crap out of Riker, Geordie and Worf before being laid out by Dr. Crusher, of all people. Crusher discovers that an alien parasite has attacked the Admiral and a few others in Starfleet and is leading a coup from within for reasons never really fully explained. The final scenes, where we think Riker has also been taken over, work marvellously, because by this point we are genuinely on board with how during this story is being. If there's a complaint, it's that the script is again wrapped up too quickly, but at least here there's a lingering feeling of unease due to the distress signal sent out by the aliens, a plot thread conveniently ignored for the rest of the series run. The ending, in which Picard and Riker phaser off Commander Remick's head and then his chest explodes outward, thanks to the mother alien living inside him, is the most graphic the series ever got, and one of only a handful of times the show used its syndicated nature to push the boundaries. Sure, I wouldn't want Star Trek to be like this every week, but doing it just this once really was very effective. The episode also benefits from a little internal continuity. Remick and Quinn appeared in a previous story setting this story up. The early days did try to link stories together, but each time they were blocked by Roddenberry, who wanted each segment to stand alone. At least he let this script through and didn't nix it or water it down. There are a few niggles, such as why didn't Quinn's little parasite thingy crawl out of his mouth when he was stunned like everyone else's did, and the purse-string show in places. A debate can also be had if the ending is pure Star Trek, but overall this is so different as to warrant a mention, and it's an episode I can put on whenever and thoroughly enjoy. Peak Performance A war game simulation turns deadly when the Ferengi show up and manage to disable the Enterprise. I love this episode. Like the Arsenal of Freedom, it's a show that makes good use of its ensemble cast, giving everybody a moment or two, while still having room for yet another outstanding Trek guest spot, this time from Roy Brocksmith as the pompous Colrami. There's nice continuity with Q Who as the reason for the war games is said to be Starfleet's uncertainty regarding the Borg, and the script is nicely paced, with a third act surprise, the appearance of the Ferengi, that works well. One of those rare episodes that actually shows the Enterprise crew being the best, rather than just telling us that they are. If there's a negative, it's that once again Wesley saves the day, but he does it in a very Kirk-esque Kobayashi Maru manner, so it's hard to feel too bad about it. A hugely enjoyable, yet oft-ignored segment. Who watches? The Watchers. A Starfleet observation post suffers a malfunction, revealing itself to the proto-Vulcans who live on Mintarkin 3. Can Picard restore the balance before the Prime Directive is irrevocably broken? This is one of the episodes I used to point people to back in the day, when they wanted to see The Next Generation and how it differed from the original. Who Watches the Watchers is one of the finest stories in the run for truly trying to explain what Starfleet Order Number 1 is, and how important it is to Captain Picard. As a rule, the Prime Directive was this wishy-washy set of values about how interfering in other cultures was bad, but for Captain Kirk it was usually an excuse to ignore it and act anyway, and for Captain Picard it was normally an excuse to just not get involved. Here, Picard has no choice but to get involved, and his loyalty and belief in the cause is well handled. It's in this episode that Picard's journey to becoming a far more complex character than Kirk really began. 
In addition to the thought-provoking story, there's yet another great Trek guest-starring role from Ray Wise. Some really nice location filming, which is a welcome change from poodling around on the ship, and the script does an excellent job of not being too patronising when talking about a culture that still believes in gods and faith. Picard is far more concerned with not being perceived to be a god himself than trying to convince this backwater civilization how daft they all are. This episode also contains one of the Next Generation's all-time great scenes. Picard beams up the tribe's leader, Nuria, to show her the ship and that there's nothing godlike about him. Her sense of awe and wonder is perfectly captured, so much so that the scene would be repeated later in an episode entitled First Contact and then again in the movie, also entitled First Contact. I can see how that can confuse a stupid person. The Enemy Stranded in a hostile environment, an injured Geordie LaForge and a lone surviving Romulan must work together to survive. Now I know what you're thinking. And you're right. Not that old chestnut, you're thinking. Well, yes, the adversaries must work together to survive plot is as old as Betty White. But in this episode, this is but one plot line in a carefully juggled three-plot episode. Plot A is indeed Geordie and a Romulan commander, Bakra, stranded on a planet of mud, wind and rain. But plot B and C complement it and each other so well that the viewer almost forgets we've seen all this before. Plot B, Picard engaging in a potentially deadly game of brinksmanship with a Romulan warbird. And plot C, Worf's refusal to allow a blood transfusion for a dying Romulan, a stirring stuff. Michael Dorn, Patrick Stewart, and in yet another magnificent Trek guest star role, Andreas Katsoulis as Romulan Commander Tomalak are all superb. Worf is at his stoic, stubborn best. Picard bluffs, charms, and commands admirably, and Tomalak is both smarmy and aggressive in equal measure. Director David Carson makes the planet-bound set of Galand and Cole look better than it ever had before, or would again, and the story by David Kemper and Michael Piller is one of the strongest Romulan stories ever made. This is The Next Generation at its very best. The Defector A Romulan defector crosses the neutral zone to warn the Enterprise of a Romulan incursion into Federation space. Picard must decide if the defector is telling the truth or if this is a ruse to engage Starfleet in a deadly war. A semi-sequel to The Enemy, the defector boasts a wonderful script by Ronald D. Moore that sets up and pays everything off within its tight 45-minute running time. James Sloyan is magnificent as the Romulan defector of the title, Admiral Jarrock, and his dilemma, avoiding a war for the sake of his children at the cost of his career and indeed his life, is compelling drama. Notable mentions, again, for Patrick Stewart, who was really on his game during Season 3, and Brent Spiner as Data, whose studies into humanity via Henry V really plays into the script in wonderful ways. Ron Jones provides another excellent score. The Defector culminates in one of the best face-offs between adversaries, as Picard and a returning Andreas Katsoulis as Tomalak wave their dicks around until Picard pulls out his ace in the hole, a fleet of Klingon vessels called in to help their allies. Picard talks softly, but carries a big stick. Moments like this really cement Picard's popularity and capability as a captain, and his more thoughtful and deliberate approach to problems. Nothing is left to chance here, as Picard weighs his options and finally comes up with a solution that leads to a stalemate that avoids war. Another standout episode that Ron Moore would apparently like so much that he reworked the basic plot into an episode of Battlestar Galactica. Yesterday's Enterprise. 
The Enterprise from the past journeys through a wormhole and disrupts time, leading to the Enterprise from the present to have to put the timeline back on its proper course. But at what cost? It was a mishmash script pulled together by numerous writers in a haze of a Thanksgiving Day writing session. It was based on two original ideas for scripts, and it gave no concessions to its audience as to what was going on. It was expensive, with lots of new effect shots, costume alterations and set dressings. It could have all gone disastrously wrong. But like the Enterprise C from the Temporal Rift, what emerged was arguably the next generation's finest hour. It's a complex script, covering time warps, temporal shifts, alternative universes and different versions of the characters we know and love, and yet it manages to blend this hodgepodge altogether with a plot. Picard is far more no-nonsense, taking no guff from anyone and letting everyone know who's in command. Commander Riker is poorly served, coming across as quite mealy-mouthed and having a rather adversarial relationship with his captain. Wesley comes across best, being a super-competent officer in the alternative timeline, but we do miss Worf. The Klingon still gets a great scene at the top of the episode, and his absence is made up for with excellent guest turns by Chris McDonnell as First Officer of the Enterprise C, Castile, and especially Trisha O'Neill as Captain Rachel Garrett, who does great work with minimal screen time. The side is let down slightly by Denise Crosby as Yar, still as dull as ever, and giving her a better death doesn't change the fact that she was a mediocre performer who really gives her lines any emotional impact. Seeing her here just reminded me how much I don't miss her. My only other minor niggle is that the movie era uniforms don't look as good without the turtlenecks and belts. Who made that decision? But that aside, this episode ensures that history will never forget the name Enterprise. The Mind's Eye Geordi is kidnapped and his visor modified by the Romulans, turning him into a sleeper agent with one goal. Kill an important Klingon governor with a view to turning the Federation-Klingon alliance asunder. A massively underrated and unsettling episode which takes the next generation's everyman, Geordi LaForge, and turns him into an implacable killing machine. Sure, he's no Terminator, but LeVar Burton has a nice line in impassive facial expressions when committing his nefarious deeds. This is truly a gem in the canon, and one which I rarely see getting much in the way of recognition, which is a shame. It's tense, well-written, well-performed, and the script escalates nicely with a fourth-act plot reveal that really works. Data's figuring out of the mystery, always a weak point in stories like this, is exceptional. Data doesn't make any ridiculous leaps of logic. He follows the breadcrumbs logically and thoroughly, arriving at his conclusions intelligently. His command to Worf to detain LeForge and that, that's an order, is wonderfully delivered by Spiner. However, this episode belongs to Burton, and he owns it. Geordi was probably the least developed character in the show. He was the everyman, he was likeable, fun, a tad geeky, unlucky in love, did his job and went home. He was very much the Chief O'Brien of the Next Generation, even though the Next Generation had a Chief O'Brien in... well, in Chief O'Brien. Nevertheless, give Burton something to do, and he excelled. It's not entirely standalone, planting the seeds for the cliffhanging season finale, but all that's explained well enough for anyone to follow without knowing that. If you've never seen this one, fire up Netflix and check it out. Relics. In orbit around a Dyson sphere, the Enterprise finds a long-lost starship, the Janolan, and a long-lost member of Starfleet, Montgomery Scott. 
But when the Enterprise is lost inside the sphere, can Scotty work his old-time magic and save the ship one more time? Over the last five years of The Next Generation, Ronald D. Moore emerged as one of the best writers of the series, turning out script after script that was long on character and humour. Those traits serve more well here, in a script ostensibly about still having something to contribute, even in your advanced years. There is some exemplary character work, with Scotty, a returning James Doohan, Picard and Geordi, but Moore throws in some pretty cool science fiction with the Dyson Sphere. If there is a criticism of this episode, it's that not enough is made of this. Still, the emotional impact of the script is undeniable, with Doohan rising to the occasion and delivering his best performance as Scotty in years. The scene where he visits the bridge of the original Enterprise is both touching and incredibly effective as a technical achievement. Kudos also to Ensign Rhaegar, one of a number of appearances by Space Above and Beyond's Lanai Chapman, who manages to pilot the clunky and unwieldy Enterprise D like it's the Millennium Falcon, allowing it to escape the Dyson Sphere before explosion. The episode has a massive plot hole at the end. How does the Enterprise beam Scotty and Geordie back from the Nolan when its shields are up? But overall, this is a far better homage to the original Star Trek than the misfire that was Spock's appearance, Unification, and it runs rings around the first Next Generation feature film. Parallels Worf returns from a Batleth competition via a quantum fissure, leading him to quantum leap between realities. Can Data find a way for Worf to leap home? Normally, writer Branham Braga's surreal flights of fancy leave me cold, one of the reasons I suspect I disliked Voyager as much as I did where he was the head writer. But for whatever reason, this episode, despite containing copious amounts of inane technobabble, really works. I suspect that it's because Worf is as bemused as the audience as he leaps from universe to universe, where the changes run the gamut from the subtle, Data has blue eyes, to the obvious, Worf is married to Troy and Picard is dead. Michael Dorn maintains a sceptical detachment from the proceedings, taking it all in stride and not even taking advantage of his impromptu marriage to the busty Beta Z to show off his Klingon ridges. The stakes increase when Worf arrives in a universe where Picard was killed by the Borg and Riker is now captain and he is first officer. Data manages to figure it all out, as usual, and it's here Brent Spiner earns his pay, delivering paragraph after paragraph of what, under normal circumstances, would be interminable dialogue about the quantum fissure, but, such is Spiner's talent, he makes it work. The script makes the same mistakes as Ant-Man and the Wasp by thinking that by adding the word quantum before everything it can make it sound sciency. But the many enterprises at the end is absolutely stunning, especially the reality where the Borg won. There are a lot of subtle changes made as well, such as a Cardassian on the bridge and the return of Will Wheaton, with no mention made of what he's been up to. Sadly, there's also one great missed opportunity. When the Enterprise is attacked by a Bajoran ship, how cool would it have been to have it be captained by Kira Norris? Braga also minds the humour and drama of the situation wonderfully, with a few genuinely hilarious moments, a touching one, Captain Riker talking to a, from his point of view, long-dead Picard, and one troubling one, the borgified Enterprise, refusing to go back to their reality. All told, an excellent mid-seventh season return to form. The Pegasus Admiral Pressman, Riker's old CO, boards the Enterprise with orders to retrieve the USS Pegasus, a long-thought lost starship. However, both Riker and Pressman are hiding something about the Pegasus, and whatever it is, it's attracted the attention of the Romulans. 
For the second week in a row, Season 7 of The Next Generation gets its groove back, with another solid entry about honour and duty. I have to be honest, Will Riker wasn't a favourite character of mine. Coming across as a sycophant with Picard and a bastard to any crew members that he wasn't sleeping with or who weren't his friends. Still, Jonathan Frakes rises to the occasion here, portraying a troubled and conflicted Riker whose youthful indiscretions are returning to haunt him, and it gives him a deeper and more interesting character to portray. His conflicts with Picard are the highlight of the show, with Frakes going toe-to-toe with Patrick Stewart, and more than holding his own. The episode is enlivened by yet another great Trek guest star performance from Terry O'Quinn, who walks the fine line between portraying Pressman as yet another mad Starfleet Admiral and also a man of conviction. There are moments in this episode where I actually agreed with Pressman's point of view. It is dumb that Starfleet doesn't have a cloaking device. It is stupid to assume that Starfleet intelligence doesn't have contingencies. And it's even dumber of Starfleet to agree to not have cloaking technology when everybody else does. The Pegasus having a phasing capability and a cloak is pushing things a bit, but it does tie in with Romulan experiments from an earlier episode, and it does allow for some great effect sequences. The episode is also incredibly funny in places, with Captain Picard Day being a comedic highlight from the show's seven-year run. Overall, though, this is an episode about consequences, and when one's loyalty to people trump one's loyalties to duty, and the only misstep is never following up on Pressman and Riker and how it affected their standing. If nothing else, this may explain why it took Riker nearly another decade to get his own captaincy. Thine own self. An amnesiac data wanders into a small town on the pre-industrial planet of Barkon 4, carrying a container of radioactive metals with him. Quickly befriending a widowed father and his daughter, Gia, Data is suddenly the prime suspect when the townies start falling ill. Can Data escape the witch hunt long enough to find a cure? Another time-worn tale of Trekkian bigotry and ignorance as Ronald D. Moore mines old Hammer movies for this take on Frankenstein on a far-off planet. Moore acknowledges the influences, which he attributes to an end-of-series malaise that all the writers were feeling, right down to Data wandering into a village, befriending a young girl and being chased by an angry mob. That said, I really love this episode, an unabashed showcase for Brent Spiner, but featuring a number of strong guest turns, primarily from Monica and Rachel's custodian, Michael G. Haggerty, the Waltons' Ronnie Claire Edwards and Kimberly Cullum as Gear. Sure, the character gets amnesia trope was old in the 1970s, and one would hope Trek would never stoop so low. But if they were going to do it, then, as with the similarly silly rascals, at least they did it well. Data's evolution from not knowing who the hell he is to the scientist we all know and love is well done by Spiner, and his banter with Edwards as know-it-all Dr. Talor is a joy to behold. To her credit, she is willing to have her eyes opened by Data and his superior scientific acumen, and even sides with the android when it's clear he's only trying to help. Haggerty's role is less auspicious. He's basically there to be the heavy who organised the pitchfork-carrying lynch mob, but he does it well, even if he doesn't get any comeuppance at the end. There's a B-plot about Troy taking her bridge officer's exam, but that's not really that interesting, and a one-scene, one-line cameo from Patrick Stewart, but this is Spiner's episode. An overlooked gem that manages to squeeze in its social commentary, go back to where you came from, the lynch mob tell data, alongside its entertainment value quite well, and it's another fine example of how the seventh season had just as many ups and downs as season one, but in season seven had actors that were comfortable enough in their roles to carry the day. All Good Things 
Picard finds himself bouncing through time from the present to seven years in the past to 25 years in the future. Throughout, the one constant is a strange anomaly that seems to be growing backwards in time, starting small in the future but all-encompassing in the past to the point where man never evolves on Earth. Picard must get his future, past and present selves to work together to save all mankind and discover just what Q's involvement in all this is. Arguably the most satisfying of the Trek finales, more so even than Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country, a movie that has a lot of lazy writing that we all ignore because the film overall gives us the warm fuzzies. Featuring everything that is good and bad about the next generation, All Good Things is a massively fun romp, full of time-hopping, great character beats, and pretty damn good special effects, and the requisite amount of techno-babble from Data about tachyon pulses and anti-time and loads of other stuff that sounds good, but probably makes no sense. The scenes set just before Farpoint wonderfully recreate the look of the show from seven years before, with special mention to Brent Spiner, who manages to nail his early interpretation of Data beautifully, and Marina Sirtis, who gamely adopts the cosmic cheerleader outfit she hated so very much. The future scenes are fun, especially for seeing how the producers thought the actors would all age. To be fair, they do okay, with only Jonathan Frakes coming out of it badly. He's aged a lot better than Riker. Now we actually are 25 years after this episode first aired, I wonder what the logistics would be of getting Frakes to refilm his scenes, as he's the only one who really stands out. Troy is nowhere to be seen in the future, which is another Next Generation negative. They never really figured out what to do with the Comely Counselor, and this seems like an excuse to just not have to put her in old age makeup. The plot is nicely complicated, enhanced by a never better John Delancey as Q, who actually seems to be on humanity's side in this episode, although his nice line of snark in summing up the last seven years is hilariously on point. The final scenes are quite touching, and the last shot of the Enterprise sailing off into the sunset gloriously evocative. If we could but ignore the next generation feature films and leave this episode as our last look at these characters, then it would be perfect. Now, as the more astute amongst you will note, there were far more than 10 episodes here. My long list had about 20, and I managed to whittle down, but even then, coming in at just 10 was difficult, even leaving out the classics like The Best of Both Worlds, Q Who, and Darmok. That's because the next generation does manage to maintain a decent level of quality over the entire run. It's much easier to do a top 10 for the original series because there's significantly less episodes. And, if we're being brutally honest, most of season 3 can be left off the table as it's pretty shit overall. The Next Generation didn't have a truly awful season, although the aforementioned run of 13 dull shows in season 5 came close, and its better episodes were some of the finest ever made under the Trek name. It's fair to say the next generation surpassed the original in critical acclaim and commercial acceptance, as well as overall quality. Sadly, the next generation didn't fare as well on the big screen as the original cast. Of the four next-gen movies, only one of them, First Contact, is objectively good, with the others all being of variable quality. I have a soft spot for Insurrection, as it's the one that feels most like the TV show, but as a big screen movie, it's a bit of a mess. Generations is a massive letdown, although it looks fantastic, and the less said about Nemesis the better. But when the next generation really worked, it soared. Star Trek is about the future, about looking forward, 
It's not about dwelling in the past, living by old values. It's about embracing change, acceptance and growth. It's about unity, exploration. The next generation embraced those themes more firmly than ever before and more successfully than any trek since. They truly took us where we'd never gone before. Captain, I've plotted a course to intercept the Charleston, but they've just informed me that they'll be making an extended stop at Arloff 9. Your point, Mr. LaForge. Well, at warp eight, we could have our guests at Starbase 39 Sierra in five days. Take months off their journey. But they'll benefit from the extended time. It'll allow them to acclimate before returning to Earth. It's a pity we can't take them there ourselves. Having them on board is like a visit from the past. That would take us in the wrong direction. Our mission is to go forward. And it's just begun. Set velocity. Warp six, Mr. LaForge. Aye, sir. Warp six. There's still much to do. Still so much to learn. Miss LaForge, engage. Chris Franklin has emailed in. Hello, Andy. Hello, Christopher. Catching up on some feedback from your last several shows. I don't recall the episode of The Fall Guy you covered, but then I don't recall any specific episodes of The Fall Guy. It was a show I watched every week, and I had the tiny Hot Wheels-sized pickup truck from the series, but beyond fond memories of it, that's about it. Having said that, if I found it available to stream somewhere, I'd seek out this one with Lindsay Wagner as a guest. That's just too much fan service to pass up. I think I mentioned that in, in the show, didn't I? That The Fall Guy is one of those shows that we all watched, we all enjoyed it, and the minute that it finished, all we remembered about it was the theme song. But hey, it's proof positive that a good theme song will carry you a long way. Chris continues, I haven't given the Magnum reboot a try yet, and I'm not sure I will. I don't make much time for regular TV nowadays. The CW shows are about as close as I get. I will say I'm somewhat relieved that a huge fan like you liked it well enough to watch it beyond the pilot. Yeah, I, I actually think the show's got better as it's gone along. I think, you know, the thing to do with it, when you watch it, there's two things to do. One, and they, they seem slightly contradictory, but the first thing you've got to do, one, is this a case that Thomas Magnum would have taken? In the 1980s. And for the most part, after the pilot, it's been, yes, I could see Tom Selleck and John Hillerman and all the others in this in this story. But the second thing is you then have to kind of take that out of the equation. Because otherwise you're constantly referring to Jay Hernandez. And he doesn't compare to Selleck favourably. It's not that he's bad, he isn't. And I can't help but think if they'd called it anything... But Magnum PI, it would probably be more favourable. But it's not it's not at all bad. It's actually quite an enjoyable show, taking on its own merit. 
Uh, Chris continues, now the Incredible Hulk, that's a whole other matter. I watched Darkseid a few years ago and it's one of my favourites as well. Anytime the show broke formula was welcome. As much as I loved the standard banner rolls into town and solves other people's problems but not his own scenario. The episode is genuinely unsettling on many levels and Bixby and Ferrigno really seem to enjoy exploring new dimensions to their characters. Your tribute to Bixby was very touching and full of sentiments I share about the man and his work. Great episode, Chris. Well, thank you, Chris. I very much enjoyed working on that one. Uh, I think it was long overdue that we paid our respects to Mr. Bixby. I just wish he'd live long enough to, to see, you know, Matt Ruffalo and Ed Norton take on the role. Another email tonight is from Reagan Jew, I think. Um, the email's not very clear and he just signs off as Reagan. In Sunnyvale, Sunnyvale, California. If only that was Sunnydale. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Hi, Andrew. Hi, Reagan. I am a huge fan of your podcast shows. Reagan, you're a friend, you're a listener. I don't have fans, I'm not that important. I first discovered you when I was looking for a podcast on the Fantastic Four. The FF has always been my favourite book and the first comic book I ever got, FF 176. I'm at episode 210 whilst listening to the current episodes as they come out. I'm looking forward to the burn run. This is what I grew up reading and is my benchmark for good storytelling and art. By listening to the Fantasticast, I heard trailers for Hey Kids comics. I'm close to catching them on that show now, only to discover that it is published less frequently, because Michael is a grown adult now. My favourite shows so far have been the ones where you guys were on vacation in Florida visiting the theme parks. Maybe you guys can do future specials on your other vacations. Well, we do have a family holiday coming up, uh, as I record this, um, for my daughter's birthday. I don't know what Angela would think about us taking time out to record something, but you never know see what happens. It wasn't until I heard a recent Fantasticast email that you said you also had a solo podcast without Michael. I played back the audio so many times because I couldn't quite figure out what you were saying. At first I thought it was policy glit and delights. I kept doing Google and Bing searches on variations with your name and policy glit and delights until I finally found a result that made sense. The palace of glittering delights. It is a thoughtful and well-written show. I like all of the shows you were on, even as a guest. There was a Star Wars story podcast where you talk of going through the airport and getting stuck with security. Yeah, that was Scott Rifen's My Star Wars Story. Still one of my favourite things I've ever done. Just goofing off about Star Wars. Uh, yeah, the Palace of Glittering Delights was, um, was a name applied to were two radio hosts, Matt Riley and Matt Radcliffe, hosted the show from. They used to do an indie music radio show every night on radio one from nine till ten or no it was ten till midnight every night ten till midnight and they would say live from the palace of glittering delights in manchester uh they don't do that anymore mark and mark and mark or mark and lard as they were as they were known uh haven't done radio one for years they're now off doing their own projects on radio six music and, and radio two and other things like that as as you get older over here in the UK, you you move from Radio 1 to Radio 2 to Radio 6. That's how it goes. Maybe Radio 4, if you're classy enough to go on that station. So I co-opted the name Palace of Glittering Delights because it, it sounded campy and fun. Um, so mostly I liked it because of that. It just sounds a bit campy and a bit stupid and a bit fun and a little bit loose, a little bit funnier than, than what we normally do. 
I think I like hearing your views so much because we are about the same age and have similar interests in pop culture. Rockford Files, Veronica Mars, The Fall Guy, Magnum P.I., comic book Star Wars, etc. I didn't realise how many American shows made it outside of the US. I was thinking if I'd grown up in the UK, I'd probably still be the same person because all of the same influence would still have been there. I've also discovered a couple more podcasts you appear on. They are Firefly and Deep Space Nine podcasts that I have yet to listen to. I didn't care for those shows when they aired, but I will listen to those shows and maybe my view will change. I also do the Overlooked Dark Knight with Michael Bailey, where we look at Batman stories we don't believe get the love they deserve. Now, we're primarily in the Len Wein, Jerry Conway era um of batman and detective from like 1979 1980-ish but we will occasionally step outside that remit we do a companion show to that under the same banner where we look at the batman animated series comics because they are genuinely underrated as brilliant batman stories and every now and again we'll we'll just dive into something that we think is underrated as batman it's not an index show per se it's um it's a show where we do what we want basically this was a long-winded introduction. Not Reagan, you're fine. The reason I'm writing is to say congratulations on 100 shows and to say thank you for keeping me entertained. You come across as an intelligent, funny and caring person. It sounds like you are an awesome father and husband as well. I wish my dad had the same interests in me. Well, thank you very much. That is one of the most touching things anyone's ever said to me. I don't think I've ever been described as intelligent before. Also, check out this Star Trek, the original series book. It just came out and covers deleted scenes. The author bought 35mm slides from Majel Barrett back in the 60s. Those slides were deleted scenes or bloopers. This book covers the cage and the dancing Venus scene that you mentioned in your commentary was covered. The author does say the scene was trimmed because it was too sexy for the censors. Oh, and that's Star Trek... Let's have a see. Star Trek Lost Scenes is on the link that Regan has supplied for me. I'll have to have a see if that's available on Amazon UK because that's Amazon.com where it's currently $25. So I'll, I'll, I'll have a see, see what, whether that's available. Thank you, Reagan. Sunnyvale, California. Well, thank you very much, Reagan. I'm glad you enjoyed the drivel that I spew forth into your earlobes on a semi-regular basis. Uh, more comics are coming up because I love comics. Probably more Star Trek as well because who doesn't love Star Trek? And that's it for this week. Next time, no idea. Once again, we're in that funny limbo state where I'm just tackling things as we go along. Hope you enjoyed this. If you have any thoughts on what I picked or episodes that you think are great that I overlooked, drop us a line at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. And I'll see you all real soon with whatever comes up next. Don't forget, you can support the show by buying your crap through Amazon through the link on the 2TrueFreaks.com page because that keeps the lights on for us. And remember, it's all going to be okay. See you next time.